Hey listeners, this episode contains discussions on sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear and may not be suitable for young ears. Check our show notes for more specific details of what is covered in this episode. Take care of yourself. Welcome to the Parents Place podcast with Hillary and Jen. We are excited to have you here, and we have a guest with us who is a guest that we see quite often in our office, but we're still excited that she is our guest. This is Carrie, and um, she oversees our mental health first aid programs, and she is such a remarkable person to have on our team. Um, So, so smart, so intelligent, and has such a passion for what we're going to talk about today. So I'm thrilled that she, that we roped her into this, uh, whether it was uh, voluntary or, you know, dragging here, but <laughs> regardless, either way you're here, but I'm going to let her, um, introduce herself a little bit and tell us a little bit about who you are and, and your background. And then if you want to share with our audience a little bit about the mental health first aid program in general, so, um, that they are aware, because I know we've talked about it to a small extent here on the podcast, but I'm sure that there are many that aren't familiar with it and would want to know. So tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, absolutely. I am excited to be here. My name is Carrie Phillips, like she said, and I'm the mental health first aid project director here at The Family Place. Uh, I recently graduated with my master's degree in communication studies and my emphasis at USU was in intercultural communication as well as mental health advocacy. So I was really excited. Um, I knew that I wanted to be part of nonprofit work before I got this job, but then when I found out that there was a position specifically about mental health advocacy, it just felt perfect and the stars aligned for me to be here. So I am really grateful to be in this position. And as she noted, Mental Health First Aid is a program from the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. And just like you can get certified in CPR or other types of first aid so you know what to do if someone has a physical health challenge, it helps you know how to respond if someone around you has a mental health challenge. And this is very common in our society, very important. Uh, One in five adults in the United States is diagnosed with a mental health challenge every year. So that only includes those who are diagnosed. And uh, it's really important that we're aware of how to understand that someone might be struggling around us and then also how to respond to that and get them the resources that will be the most helpful. So that's what the program seeks to address. You know, we'll we'll dive into statistics a little bit. I think it's awesome we have this resource, especially now, because it seems we need it now more than ever. So yes, yes, so grateful for this. Now, where our audience is, both here locally as well as throughout the state and throughout the United States and even in the world, how can one access these resources? So there is a website called mentalhealthfirstaid.org. And it gives you access to any of the trainings that are happening across the United States. There are mental health first aid programs in other countries as well. Um, But specifically here in the Valley um, and for the state of Utah, we are able to offer mental health first aid for free. So if you go to our website or to the mental health first aid website, you would be able to select our class and sign up for it and take it for free which is just a fabulous resource. And it virtual and in person? Yes, yes. So we have three different ways that we offer it. There's full in-person, there's a blended option where you do some pre-course work on your own time and then come in for the second part. And then we have a full virtual option where you do some coursework on your own time and then join us for a live virtual session. Okay. Now... I'm just thinking here. This is information that obviously I think any of us as community members can benefit from. But I'm thinking, 
school personnel. I'm thinking religious leaders. I'm thinking there is a large group of individuals that should be trained in this on a consistent basis. Absolutely. Is that mm-hmm. happening in most places or are we still working on, you know, getting that ball rolling? Um, so I would say yes and yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and I receive emails all the time from religious leaders, from school personnel all across the country who are looking for these resources, who are excited to take this class. Uh, here in Cache Valley, we're still trying to get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Before I was in this position, I'd never heard of mental health first aid. And so as a project director, that's something that I'm working to change. I want people to be aware that it exists, and then know how to get access to it. So that's the direction that we're moving right now. I know with the time commitment, because it is a time commitment, it's an eight-hour course, but I think on the flip side, eight hours versus not being able to help somebody, you can't compare the two. And so if we can I think if we can put that mindset aside of, oh my gosh, that's eight hours long, to I can save someone's life, then we, I think we can get a lot more people to do it. I mean, I think about CPR, and when you go, I don't know, I haven't done it in the Red Cross for a long time, but I remember it being an all-day thing, Mm -hmm. and so it's just as important. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's this sense of, oh, well, I should be able to get the training that I need in less time than that. And, you know, absolutely, we can do shorter trainings, Mm -hmm. and I'm happy to go out in the community and help with those. But there are just a number of resources that we're able to provide in the full training that it can't be provided in a shorter period Mm -hmm. of time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so empowering when you know someone in my life is struggling and I know how to help them. Yeah. And I think that the shorter ones, you don't get certified. Yes. And so, really, I mean, I feel like all the certifications people can put on their resumes that are applicable to people, then the better off you are. I mean, I look at that when I hire, and so I think that certificate goes far. Well, and, and I, I'm glad you bring up that statistic because... Um, you know, for, for many of the jobs that I've been involved in, it's been a requirement to receive CPR first aid certification. And I remember um, being young, pre-children, and thinking, I'll go through the motions, I'll just do it, but chances are I'm never going to have to perform CPR or the Heimlich maneuver on, on anyone, but I'll, I'll check off the box because it's a requirement. <laughs> and I remember having this moment when I first had kids thinking, I need to be prepared mm-hmm. because if this little one starts choking on something while he's eating in my home, it's going to be up to me to perform the necessary skills. Yeah. And I think you say that statistic one in five. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah. yes, I mean, that's everyone probably knows someone more than yeah. likely you're going to be using exactly. that on a regular exactly. basis. So I think if you think about it that way, this isn't just a skill that we're going to check the box because chances are at some point it may help us. No, it will help us because whether you have a, a child yourself, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, you have someone around you that needs the support and assistance and it may be up to you to provide that in that time of need. Yeah, well, and I would also just note that it's so reassuring in that moment you know, someone comes to you and they need you and being able to think, I've got this. Mm-hmm. I have the training I need. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in a car accident the other day. My little brother broke his arm. And, you know, scary as that was, mm-hmm. because I'd taken that physical first aid training, I knew how to help him. And in a similar manner, I've had friends come to me who are struggling with things like suicidal ideation and having the knowledge of, mm-hmm. okay, I've got this. I know how to help this person. Uh, It's so empowering and something that I would, uh, it's a gift that I would love to keep giving. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully we'll be able to do that in our office. Yes, yes. That's what our hope is. (laughs) So going along with the statistics, because I know, like I said, I think a lot of times we 
we hear this conversation that, you know, uh, mental health and, and teens and children are dealing with more mental health issues than they ever have before. Yeah. Let's speak to some of the trends that you know when it comes to an increase in, in mental health and um, particularly mental health issues that our teens are dealing with. Is it getting worse? Are we just more aware and talking about it more? Uh, particularly with Utah, what does it look like for us? What do we know? Yeah, so I definitely think that we are doing a better job of understanding that it's happening. So numbers are being reported at higher mm-hmm. levels. However, because of the pandemic, because of um, increase in social media filtering and uh, just a general sense of isolation, the numbers are increasing. So in Utah, uh, suicide is the leading cause of death for ages 10 to 24. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the second leading cause of death from 25 to 35 and in the top five for everyone in the state of Utah. So, you know, our, this cause of death that we would hope could be preventable Mm -hmm. is what is killing many of the people Mm -hmm. in our state. And I know that nationally it continues to be a problem Mm -hmm. as well. Um, it affects all demographics and all ages. There's this sense of, oh, it only happens to people in such and such group. Mm-hmm. But everybody is affected by this. Um, and not only by the person who is dying by suicide, but it has a ripple effect through family, friends, work. So the, yeah. the effect is really vast. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading a statistic the other day that was saying that the loss of a loved one to suicide has the same level of trauma on the body as someone who experienced a concentration camp. That's how severe it is. And so it's just uh, tragic for everyone involved. And, and, but I want to emphasize that as we're talking about this extremely difficult topic today, that we really want to emphasize the hope for recovery. Mm-hmm. That, you know, this is something that is tragic, that is sad, that we don't like to talk about. But my hope is that because we're able to talk about it, we're going to spread that hope. We're going to spread these resources that can and do save these lives. Mm-hmm. I had, you had said social filtering. And because I'm old, I don't know exactly what that means. So can you, because I feel like the younger people, this probably affects them more than myself because I'm not on social media that much, but what does that mean? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so I'll start with another statistic. In the state of Utah, seven out of 10 teenagers, ages 12 to, I guess, 24 is not a teenager technically, but um, seven out of 10 meet the criteria for moderate to severe depression at some point throughout the year. So um, as researchers have been studying, why is this happening? Why are our teens struggling so much? One of the big causes that they found is on social media. I'm not going to be that person who says that social media is evil (laughs) and bad and we need to get rid of it forever because it does really important things. But the other part of it is that we are encouraged to live a filtered life on social media. So you only see the best mm-hmm. parts of people's lives, mm-hmm. and usually they've put literal filters mm-hmm. on those. And that's what I was thinking, literal filters. Yeah. But it is, you are living a filtered life. You're only putting the great things. Exactly. Um, you know, you wouldn't look at someone who's going on this fabulous vacation and say, oh, I bet they're struggling with a mental health challenge mm-hmm. right now, or... Maybe they're fighting with someone in their family, and that's why they felt the need to go on a vacation and get away from there. If we're only seeing the best parts of people's lives, then it can lead us to feel like, oh, I'm the only one who doesn't have everything together. I'm the only one who isn't chasing all of these amazing dreams. I remember when I was first dating my husband, and he had friended my sister-in-law and my brother and he was going during his divorce he was going through a horrible time i mean lots of depression not a great situation that he was in 
but he was documenting it on social media uh, of this is, I'm not in a good space. And for him, that was, he got so much back from people reaching out that it really helped him. But I remember my family saying, have you looked at his past posts? It looks like he gets in pretty dark spots. Do you really want to get involved with that? And I thought to myself, you know, he's just speaking the truth. And if we all spoke the truth, because we all have hard days or dark days or whatever they are, I think social media could be an amazing platform instead of looking, saying, oh, look at that guy. He's having a really hard time. He must be, you know, having lots of mental health problems mm -hmm. instead of saying, oh, he's sharing the truth of what mental health issues look like. Mm -hmm. And it's okay because now we can reach out and say, you know what? Do you need to go for a lunch? Do you need to do this to those that we love? And so I wish more people were honest like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I talk about with my interpersonal communication students, we have a whole unit on social media, is that uh, one of the leading causes of heart disease and the leading cause of early death is social isolation. Mm -hmm. So if we can use social media as a way to connect with other people mm -hmm. in a way that creates opportunities for in-person connection, then it's a really amazing resource. And that's where the connection has to happen, right? If we're feeling isolated in our personal lives, it's easy to feel even more isolated if we're just seeing everything that's happening on social media. But if you're able to say, oh, this person is struggling, or on the flip side, wow, this person looks like they're having an amazing experience. I want to reach out to them and make that in-person connection that becomes a really powerful and even life-saving tool. Mm -hmm. We can debate social media for a long time, trust me. I've got very good ideas on it, too. Yes, but, yes. <laughs> so we are, we are having this podcast in, uh, this is a time, timely sense for when we're having this because it is September. And so there is something uh, beautiful in September. So what do we get to advocate on behalf of in September? Yeah, so September is Suicide Awareness Prevention Month. So not that we're preventing suicide awareness, but we're trying to prevent <laughs> suicide by raising awareness. Yes. And uh, we have a lot of events going um, on around the state, and that's also what our podcast is focusing on today. Yeah, so this idea of like being able to talk about the tough things, that's mm -hmm. what we want to do, because we want to be able to open up these conversations. We want to be able to have these have these th these tough moments where we can mm -hmm. help each other and help ourselves to become a little bit more aware as to what it takes to prevent, like you said, suicide. So um, let's let's talk about some of the maybe some of the reasons why individuals shy away from having this topic. Why mm -hmm. is it so hard for us to talk about suicide, and what tends to draw people away from having open and honest conversations about it? Yeah, so there are two things that come to mind when you ask this question. The first is stigma. Uh, it's a word that we throw around a lot. It's a word that we hear, especially talking about mental health. Um, but what the literal meaning of stigma, the roots that it comes from, it means to mark. And so as a society, we've marked suicide as a topic that we should sweep under the rug, mm -hmm. that we should keep behind closed doors, mm -hmm. that it's a very private thing. And so we feel afraid to talk about it for fear of being marked as different or marked mm -hmm. as weird or even crazy, some of these stigmatizing words that we use. Mm -hmm. okay. I'm just thinking, I, I mean, been in this field for a long time, so I feel like I'm fairly comfortable talking about suicide mm -hmm. in front of adults. When I have to mention it in front of children, it's like a whisper that I tend to go to because I don't want them to hear or I don't want their parents to think, oh, you shouldn't be saying this in front of my child. Mm -hmm. But I'm really thinking I probably should stop doing the whisper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, 
it's not a bad thing to talk about suicide in front of kids. Now, do I need to give all of the details of how, what happened? No, but they need to hear it because to yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think that there's also this sense that we've developed of if I talk about this, it's going to give people ideas. Mm -hmm. And so people are afraid of bringing up the word because they think, oh, well, if I say the word suicide, then maybe this person who's struggling is suddenly going to have these suicidal thoughts. Uh, But the good news is the research doesn't back that up. Mm-hmm. Our, our research that we've read, that we teach in mental health first aid, indicates that actually talking about suicide and saying the word mm-hmm. suicide reduces the risk mm-hmm. and that it helps people who are struggling to bring that dark place that they're in into the light. Mm-hmm. And they have this sense of, oh, this person that I'm talking to is willing to talk about this. Mm-hmm. They don't have to, they aren't stigmatizing me. They aren't putting me in this place where I'm not allowed to use this word. I can describe what I'm feeling. And if they aren't having those thoughts, it's not going to make them suddenly have those thoughts. You know, working in the area of child abuse prevention, I think we we see that same thing. Parents are often fearful of, you know, if you start talking to kids about child abuse, you're you're planting a seed that they wouldn't have thought of otherwise, Mm -hmm. and we don't necessarily want these ideas in their head Mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been in there if it had not been for you introducing this concept, but I often try to remind parents that, you know, just like in school, as we prepare children for for fire drills and for earthquake drills, and even nowadays for lockdown drills Mm -hmm. in case there's an active shooter, are those things scary? Yes, they are. But the reality is, is that for many children, that may be something that they encounter in their life. And we want to help them to be made aware, but also to prepare them. Mm-hmm. So that if that time comes where they may need to use those preventative skills, that they know how to help themselves, but also they know how to help other people as well, too. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. You know, my daughter, um, it was funny because, it's not funny, it was interesting because she deals with anxiety herself and I remember uh, working with her clinician and um, she had some anxiety related to COVID and as a mom it was my natural reaction to kind of shy away from conversations related to COVID because Mm -hmm. I was afraid they would make her more fearful Mm -hmm. so we just we wouldn't talk about it Mm -hmm. you know if if it was if it was on the news we turn off the tv if it was on the radio we turn down the volume because we didn't necessarily want her to be involved in that but I remember uh her her therapist saying you know especially for kids with anxiety yeah if they don't know the 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 truth then they find a way in their little minds to Mm -hmm. create that story on their own yeah which if these are young children that story is bound to be inaccurate Mm -hmm. and so I feel Mm -hmm. like with a situation like this with suicide, um, helping children to understand, children and, and people in general to understand, here's the facts, and here's what we know will help, mm-hmm. and, and giving them that accurate story rather than having them come up with information on their own. Because I think when we do, like I'm just thinking as you're explaining that of turning everything off, not talking about it, and I'm like, what in my adult brain would that equate to? And I'm thinking, well, I would think that there's something scary going on. Mm -hmm. And lots of times we forget that kids think the exact same way times 10 sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so talking about it, yeah. But I do completely understand our, our, oh, let's not talk about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to give her more information or ideas, but it really is the information that is helping reduce the anxiety or knowing that they can go to a safe place, a safe person to talk about their feelings. And I think it's really important as we have these conversations, especially with children, that we start using, um, in the field we call it safe language, Mm -hmm. Um, but changing the ways that we discuss suicide. You know, in the past, people associate suicide with the word commit. Mm -hmm. They commit suicide. But the problem with commit is that there are essentially three associations that we have with that word. 
you can commit a crime, you can commit a sin, or you can commit to a relationship. And none of those things are what we want children and adults to be associating with what happens in suicide. If a child feels like, you know, I'm, they're 10 years old, they're struggling with these feelings, but, oh, if I talk about this, does that mean that I'm committing a sin? Does that mean that I'm going to go to jail because I'm committing a crime? And, and if we can change that to say, you know, these are experiences that you're having. These are feelings that you're having. And we take away that idea of commit and change it instead to you're having thoughts about this or um, this person died because of this then we start to talk about it as what it is, which is a sickness. Mm -hmm. And a sickness is something that we can address. Whereas a crime or a commitment to a crime or to a sin is something that we punish. And so we really want to change that. Mm, I've never thought about it that way. But you're right, we do often use the term committed, committed suicide. So what would be the more correctly appropriate term to use then if that's the case? Yeah, so if we're talking about, you know, it hasn't happened, but you're thinking about Mm -hmm. it, then rather than saying you're thinking about committing suicide, Mm -hmm. it's you're thinking about suicide or you're thinking about killing yourself. And, you know, if we lose a person, rather than saying they committed suicide, Mm -hmm. we'd change it to they died by suicide. So I'm imagining a mom like myself who Mm -hmm. is listening, Mm -hmm. listening to this podcast and thinking, I have young children, I have teens, I have uh, adult children, um, and I've never had this conversation before with my kids, and I need to do that. Uh, Where would one start? What what should that conversation include? How do we make um, how do we make that a successful uh, conversation with our kids? So I think a really important place to start is just by, you know, something that we talk about on the podcast all the time, which is teaching children to recognize and share the feelings that they're experiencing. Um, Mental health thrives in isolation, or I should say mental health challenges thrive in isolation. And so if children feel like they're having these feelings and they don't know how to share them or are afraid to share them, same with adults, it makes it worse. So we want to start from the very beginning saying, oh, I can tell that you're sad about this. Let's talk about that. What are you feeling? Um, And if we can get to a culture as a society where it's okay to have feelings of sadness, where it's okay to be struggling, then we can unpack those deeper, maybe darker things that might be going on. And eventually creating a climate where if someone is struggling, if a child is struggling, they'll be able to come to their parent and say, this is really hard and I don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And then as a society, we also want to move toward treating mental health challenges as or the same way that we would treat a physical illness. Mm-hmm. There's this sense of, you should get over it. You should just be positive. Just, you know, yeah, do, do these things, check these boxes, just exercise more and you'll feel better. And, you know, those self-help things that we do can be really helpful. But if someone, you know, their appendix exploded, we wouldn't tell them, oh, just, just suck it up. (laughs) Just get better. Right. We'd take them to the hospital and the doctors would be able to help them. Yes. And so we want to have that same idea about mental health challenges. Hey, this is a sickness, but guess what? We can treat sicknesses. We can go to doctors. We can do these self-help things. There are all of these resources to help you feel better Mm -hmm. and you can feel better. Emotional regulation is so important. And that is one thing that we're seeing with Mm -hmm. kids is Mm -hmm. they're not knowing how to regulate their own emotions. Right. And so they're having this. And that's also part of that is understanding your feelings and being able to put correct words with it. Mm -hmm. And 
being able to talk about it. And so it's a big thing that, I mean, we're seeing here at the family place Mm -hmm. that parents are really wanting their kids to learn how to do this because some reason, I don't know what it is, (laughs) if the pendulum went too far one way and whatnot, but we need to get back to talking about feelings Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. regulating our emotions. Absolutely. You know, I remember it was probably when I was taking my son to his uh, middle school for his for his yearly um, like doctor visit for middle school. And one of the things that they do as part of that doctor visit is they have your teen, your preteen, fill out a questionnaire mm-hmm. regarding feelings and suicide and, you know, have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt hopeless and lost? And like you don't have anything to look forward to. And I believe in that questionnaire, it uses the terminology suicide. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was the first time I had noticed. I may not say that I uh, go every single year to the what child checkup. So maybe it was before <laughs> that. <laughs> but that was the first time I noticed them giving him that form and having him fill it out. And I remember watching him fill it out. And then he turned to me and he said, Mom, what exactly is this asking me? And... It was such a great opportunity for me to say, let's talk about this. Like, like let's talk about what it's asking you on this form. Let's yeah. talk about what this means. And let's talk about why it's important for you to have this understanding mm-hmm. at this age. Yeah. And I was like, kudos to these doctor's offices mm-hmm. now. That they're recognizing that not only are we here to take care of your physical health, mm-hmm. but we're here to take care of your mental health too. But I love that they gave me a very uh, a, a teachable moment for my mm-hmm. child where mm-hmm. I could have easily said, well, I'll just, I'll just fill it out. Don't mm-hmm. worry about it. You know, and, and brushed it aside like we yeah. tend to do. Yeah. But instead, they gave me this opportunity to say, all right, let's have a conversation about this. And let yeah. me answer any questions that you have that it's asking you on this form. I thought yeah. it was great. And I think I mean, doctors are coming, becoming more aware of ACEs which is um, adverse childhood experiences Mm -hmm. and understanding that mental health is part of that or living in a home where there's mental health and making sure that um, they are screening for those Mm -hmm. things so that they can get them the proper resources. So unlike a physical ailment where I can clearly see that my child has a cut or a bruise Mm -hmm. or, or maybe even a broken bone, I'm assuming it may not be as easy to recognize some of the signs and symptoms associated with a, with a mental illness. Mm-hmm. So what, um, we as a community, what, what are some of those signs that we can watch out for and be made aware of? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point. Um, so first and foremost, we just want to look for changes in behavior and particularly emotional responses that seem out of the ordinary or uh, maybe larger or more flat than we would expect for a certain situation. So uh, it really starts with being aware of the people around you. As a parent, being aware of how does your child normally respond to situations that arise? And are their responses different? Are they seeming emotionally flat in a way that they normally wouldn't be? Or are they seeming more angry, more sad, more extreme than they usually would be? Um, Are they showing the same level of interest in things that they've always enjoyed? Or is that changing? That's a really important warning sign for depression is things that normally fill you up, bring you joy, you don't care about in the same way anymore. Are they responding to life with enthusiasm and are their emotions appropriate for the situation Mm. you know if their best friend moves across the country we would expect them to be sad Mm -hmm. mental health that would be a normal response Mm -hmm. but you know two months down the road are they still crying every day because they miss their friend or have they withdrawn from their other friends seeking alone time We really want to be aware of any signs that they're withdrawing from friends, from family, from life, as well as those um, emotional changes. Uh, Physically, you might notice things like 
they're not taking care of themselves the way that they usually would. Um, or conversely, that they're paying much more attention, that they're extremely meticulous about, I have to look this way, I have to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of the things that I would suggest starting with. You said to get to know how your kids look when they're having different emotions. Mm-hmm. And there's this great handout, I'll have to remind them to attach it. Um, but it's called being a feelings detective. So it's just this handout that goes through happy, sad, angry, you know, several other feelings of Mm -hmm. what are characteristics that my child shows, what body language are they showing when they are having these emotions. So that, yes, you, it's kind of funny that you're sitting there taking notes Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. But when you do come to these situations and you're like, hey, I've watched that. I've taken five minutes out of my day to, to sit and watch my child when they're really happy and noticing those, those different things. Yeah. So I love that handout, and I love that um, parents have that opportunity to sit back and really see what do my kids feel like in these different feelings. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that it brings it. I think sometimes when we think about suicide prevention, we think about you know, rallying together thousands of troops, you know, thousands of people <laughs> to march down, you know, yes. Center Street and Logan. And I don't think it needs to be that big. Mm-hmm. I think suicide prevention looks like knowing my child, mm-hmm. having a conversation on a consistent basis, mm-hmm. spending time with them, mm-hmm. being aware of what's going on at school. To me, that seems much more manageable yeah. than saying, I'm going to put together a protest yeah. <laughs> yes. that's going to occur this weekend. Yes. And so I love that it takes it down to a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. That to me, I'm like, I can work on that. Yes. I can focus in on that. And that's where the power lies. Yeah. So we've talked about family and kids, but I know, and this may have not been a prep question, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> veterans. Yeah. We know within our country that that is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can we do there? Uh, just the same kind of ideas or I just I feel like these people have given up so much of their time for all of us that we need to make sure that they are safe. Absolutely. Um, in my work with veterans, and the research that I've read, one of the things that I've understood is that, you know, every veteran has a unique experience and that often one of the things they struggle with the most when they come home is feeling like nobody understands. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is there. Nobody else gets it. Um, but just as with any other person experiencing this, it's that social isolation that creates big problems, right? So we want to try and get them to community groups. To um, There are a lot of really amazing um, social support groups for veterans where they come together, where you know even though their experiences aren't exactly the same, they have that shared bond of, we've been out there, mm-hmm. we've seen what it's like, and so we can rally together for support. Mm-hmm. And then bringing in those uh, family and medical supports as well. So that to the extent that's possible, these veterans are realizing, okay, I have my comrades who are going through similar mm-hmm. things, trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. I have my family who's trying to understand, trying to help. And then also these medical professionals who are trained to help me work through these feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, my dad was in the military for 26 years and so... Mm-hmm just grateful that he never had to go to any type of war or anything like that but having a deep appreciation for that community Mm -hmm. um, just we need to let them know that we're here to help them too I mean they've gone so far to to help us giving their lives or giving years to fighting Mm -hmm. let me help you Absolutely. And, you know, just putting another plug in for our mental health first aid program. 
we have a section that is specific mm-hmm. to veterans and their mm-hmm. families. So if you're listening to this and going, okay, I have someone in my life and I know that they're struggling um, and they're a veteran, but I don't know how to help them specifically. We train for that. Mm-hmm. So we train for what are these veterans experiencing? How can we talk about mental health with them? How can we get them to appropriate resources? So um, let's talk about next steps. Let's say that that we are aware of someone that may be dealing with depression or suicide, or or maybe that person is ourself. What's the first step that we can take to ensure the safety of that individual? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I'll start with if you notice it in someone else. Mm -hmm. So the first thing... And probably the hardest thing is we have to ask the question. And as a society, once again, because we're so afraid of using the word suicide, we say things like, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Mm -hmm. Or you aren't going to do something dumb, are you? And around the bush. Exactly. But in our training, we talk about, and I'll emphasize here, we need to use the actual word. Mm-hmm. Are you thinking about suicide or are you thinking about killing yourself? And that's an intimidating question mm-hmm. to ask. Uh, it's much easier to beat around the bush yeah. because it's scary to use that word. It's scary to think that someone that you care about could be going through such a dark experience. Mm-hmm. But we really need to use that word. Um, I was asked the other day, okay, well, why can't we just say, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Mm-hmm. And the problem with it is that there is another branch of mental health challenges non, known as non-suicidal self-injury. Mm-hmm. Um, we also call it self-harm. Mm-hmm. And so if you ask someone if they're thinking of hurting themselves, they might think of it in terms of, well, am I going to go cut or burn myself? Mm -hmm. No, I'm thinking about killing myself. Mm -hmm. And also, sometimes when they're thinking about killing themselves, the methods that they're thinking of using won't be painful. And so if we use the words, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Mm -hmm. We might skirt completely around what they're actually thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hurt myself. I want the hurt to go away. Absolutely. So I'm thinking of a way to get that stop yeah yeah because people who are having these experiences the vast majority don't want to die that's Mm -hmm. not what they're looking for what they're looking for is a way to end the pain Mm -hmm. and the pain that they're experiencing just seems unbearable so we want to bring that out we want to say i'm so sorry that you are experiencing this pain Let's carry it together. Let's get the resources that we need. So once we can ask the question, of course, our conversation is going to depend on their response. Mm -hmm. But if they say, you know what? Yes, I am having these thoughts. That can be a really terrifying moment for you, right? Okay, I had to work up all of this courage just to (laughs) ask the question. And now, mm-hmm. yes, they are actually experiencing this. That's when breathing comes in. Totally yes. On our own. Yeah. Yeah. And we might forget to breathe. Mm-hmm. You just kind of freeze up in that moment, like, snap. What do I do now? Yeah. Or some people will also have the tendency to have a huge reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But neither of those are going to be helpful. We don't want to create a medical emergency ourselves by forgetting to breathe. And if we have a huge emotional reaction, then what it tells that person is, oh, there's something really wrong with me, or I need to focus on helping this person Mm -hmm. instead of dealing with what they are experiencing. So something that we talk about is you want to be like a duck swimming in the water. If you look at a duck, they are so calm, so serene, (laughs) just gliding but if you could see under the water those little feet are kicking as fast as they possibly can and so that's what we want to be like inside you might be freaking out but on the outside we want to invite 
the kind of response that will be reassuring to this person. Mm-hmm. Practice their poker face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Practice taking those deep breaths. Practice saying, wow, I'm so sorry to hear that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Be curious. Ask more questions. Because if they are having those thoughts, then we want to find out, okay, where are they in their planning stages? Mm-hmm. We'd ask them at that point, do you have a plan? Do you have a timeline? Do you have the means that you would use for this? Um, And at any point, if they are saying, yes, I'm having these thoughts, we want to make sure that we're getting them to professional help. But especially if they're saying, yes, I have a timeline. Yes, I have a plan. Yes, I have the means. We need to treat that as a medical emergency and Uh, call for emergency services immediately Mm -hmm. or take them straight to the hospital. In these moments, it's especially important that we don't leave them alone. Um, Sometimes even just the space of a few minutes, someone Mm -hmm. may say, yes, I'm having this. And if we say, okay, I'm going to go get resources, Mm -hmm. they might choose that time to take action. Mm -hmm. So as soon as they tell us, yes, I'm experiencing this, we want to stay with them and get them directly to the resources. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit more about the resources. Where should we go to for that help? Yes. So um, as with any medical emergency, you can call 911. Um, if you choose that route, it's particularly helpful to ask for a mental health professional if they have one. Okay. Sometimes they have people who are trained specifically to deal with suicidal ideation or behavior mm-hmm. who can come respond so that's medical or not medical um like our police force some of them are specifically trained in mental health yes okay yeah yeah because i'm just thinking a regular police officer if they have the means to do it right there mm-hmm. it's going to become this big thing but if there's someone a police officer that's trained in mental health it, it'll be a completely different picture absolutely absolutely and um, a resource that I really want to highlight is new it's the number 988 and this is a national suicide prevention number it's available 24 7 you can call or text so 911 you might use if you need you know if someone has attempted suicide and we need help immediately. Mm-hmm. Whereas 988 is, you have this conversation with someone and they say, you know what? Yeah, I'm having these thoughts. I don't have the means with me right now, but I am thinking about it. Mm-hmm. We'd call 988 and they can talk us through that moment. They can tell us, okay, we should call 911 now. We should go to the hospital. We should engage in you know, whatever strategies are needed for that moment. And if this is an individual that says, I don't have a plan, um, I'm just having a really hard time right now. I'm just mm-hmm. dealing with a lot of really tough stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the best way to help an individual um, in that stage? Yeah, absolutely. So any time that a person hints or says explicitly that they're having these sorts of thoughts, we want to treat it very seriously. So... We will want to make, we call it a safety plan with them. Uh, Okay, can I hold on to your gun until you're feeling safe? Can I, you know, what what resources would you need to feel supported? It can be a time when we can bring in those uh, professional resources because, you know, they're saying, I'm having a really hard time. Well, it might not be a high suicide risk at that point but if they're experiencing depression if they're experiencing anxiety those are things that we would want to treat anyway Mm -hmm. so we want to refer those professional resources and um, really help them feel that they have choices and that they have the ability to recover and move forward and having been through my own struggle in the past with having some of these thoughts. There really was this point of feeling like there's nothing to look forward to. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's no hope. Mm-hmm. It's never going to change. 
And that's something that we really want to help address is, hey, you know what, this is really hard right now, but we have resources and recovery is possible and you don't have to feel this way forever and you don't have to be alone as you're experiencing this. And each of those reassurances are really powerful as we try to help the person think about a future where they do feel better, Mm -hmm. where they have the resources and also are, you know, back to pursuing their dreams, pursuing their relationships. My husband is a suicide survivor. And so, um, and he shares his story whenever he can. Mm -hmm. Um, He's done the I'm Still Here video series that the Diamond Place has done. And um, he always says at the, like the end of his presentations, when we go out and do them, he says, you know, if I had succeeded on that day, I wouldn't have my two beautiful girls. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have met, of course, Jen, <laughs> um, you know, going through all of those things. Mm-hmm. And that has really, when he it's hard times, he's like, oh, I got to remember the good things, the hope that does come. I'm, I'm probably going to have a grandbaby in the future, mm-hmm. and I want to look towards that grandbaby. Yes. And he really focuses on the hope and knowing that there's such great things that are still to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've given us a lot of hope, Lindsay, and I love this. I love that, that this conversation is happening. Um, as we kind of close up on time, any last things that you would want to share that you would want our audience to know? So, so we've spent a, a good portion of time talking about how to help others who are experiencing this. Um, and, and as Jen has alluded to, I just want to give a message to those who are listening to this, who are thinking, okay, that's not happening outside me. That's happening inside mm-hmm. me. Uh, and to those people, I would say, you know, having been there myself, there is light at the end of this tunnel. And, um, you know, making that decision to stay instead of to end everything uh, is a decision that has so many beautiful outcomes that... There are wonderful, glorious, amazing things that maybe you don't see right now, that maybe you don't feel right now, but they exist and you can have a beautiful, healthy, amazing life even after having these thoughts. That was a great way to end and I think a great way of summing everything up and I really appreciate your time, um, your vulnerability and um, just all of the discussion this is a discussion we need to, to have on a regular basis with family friends kids just a regular conversation um, if you or someone is having a hard time do call that number 988 and get the help that you um, need and deserve and reach out to those that can help you as well we thank you for listening and we will see you next week Thank you for listening to the Parents Place podcast. If you would like to reach us, you can at parents at the familyplaceutah.org or you can reach Jen on Facebook, Jen Daly the Family Place. Please check out our show notes for any additional information. Our website is thefamilyplaceutah.org if you're interested in any of our upcoming virtual classes. We'd love to see you there.